The more physio we give them, the better our critical care patients will improve. That's right, isn't it? Let's find out. Well, hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. I've had quite an exciting month, actually. A couple of things have happened for me. One is that somebody has kindly offered to sponsor my podcast, and you'll be hearing more of that a little bit later. And the other is that I have also been asked to attend the International Fluid Academy conference in Belgium, Antwerp, November of this year. So I'm kind of going on the same format as I'm going to smack, really, almost a media pass stroke social media member, um, which is great. Manu Malbrain um, asked me to go there. It's a conference that's run for the last uh, six years now, or five years. This will be the sixth year. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. It's nice to be invited to all these conferences um, and meet a lot of new people and hear all the latest things that are happening in intensive care. So this is a conversation I had with Bronwyn Connolly who I met at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference and I say all that in the intro so I'm not going to say it all again so let's go ahead and listen to this. I'm with um, Dr. Bronwyn Connolly to give her a full title. She's a consultant clinical research physiotherapist. Um, doing her, uh, She's a postdoctoral research fellow um, based I think mainly at the Lane Fox Respiratory Unit if that's right. Yeah, that's right there in the in the intensive care unit at St. Thomas's Hospital as well. Okay. Uh, Bronwyn was asked at the Intensive Care State of the Art uh, Conference to uh, do a year in review, and this was all about physical rehabilitation in critical illness. Uh, it was a fascinating talk. It was part of a fascinating session that morning, um, and as a consequence, Bronwyn and I uh, got together and uh, talked about her presentation. Unfortunately, we didn't manage to capture it very well the first time. So Bronwyn very kindly has come back and agreed to uh, to uh, go through that presentation again. So Bronwyn, away you go. I may interject with the odd question, um, but you go for it. Fantastic. Well, please, please do. Um, so yeah, this was a, a year in review presentation to look at physical rehabilitation trials in critical illness that had been published in 2016. And there are a number of trials and it was easiest to kind of uh, separate them according to the stage of the recovery process or the recovery trajectory of patients. So looking at trials that of interventions that were delivered whilst patients were in the ICU um, and also trials that were pub um, looking at interventions delivered following hospital discharge. There were no trials that had interventions that were primarily focused at the ward-based period of recovery. Um, and so we started with the trials from in the ICU, and there were three major publications, uh, two from North America and one from Europe, um, all looking at uh, intensive forms of physical therapy interventions in the ICU. And the first was a study from Mark Moss and his colleagues, um, again, North America, and they looked at uh, patients who were in five medical intensive care units, and they were randomised to receive intensive physiotherapy um, after having been ventilated for five days. And that intervention comprised of um, around 30 minutes of treatment in the ICU and also continued in patients who survived uh, to the ward and also following hospital discharge. Uh, and there were 59 patients in that group and then 61 randomized to standard care. And that was three times a week physical therapy. 
Uh, and they had no follow, no outpatient physio or and just telephone advice delivered afterwards. They looked at their primary outcome of the physical function performance test at four weeks and found that there was no significant difference between um, intervention, excuse me, sorry, between groups randomised to the interventions. Um, Can you just um, talk, Bronwyn, about the physical function performance test? What does that involve? Uh, so that's a relatively, um, that's a, an outcome measure that hasn't been used primarily in critical illness before. It hasn't been validated. And that's possibly one of the, the reasons why some of the scores uh, appeared as they did, that there was substantial floor effect um, at the primary time point. So only thir- a third of patients were able to complete the physical function assessments as part of that test. And whilst that number um, increased at the subsequent follow-up points um, at three months and six months, uh, there was still a lot of difficulty in being able to capture data in patients um, through that study um, using that using that measure. It looks at um, subscores around uh, strength, flexibility, uh, lower limb strength, balance, coordination and endurance. So a number of different elements uh, captured within that performance test, but just hasn't been used in the critical care population before. So it's never been validated particularly, so it doesn't make it, it's not necessarily the strongest um, primary outcome then in that case, possibly. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a real proliferation of outcome measures that you can use with, with patients, uh, especially around assessing physical function and physical performance. Uh, and one of the problems we see across a number of these trials is that they're all measuring something different. And it makes it very difficult to compare and contrast across the studies because there's a relative lack of consistency and not all measurements, uh, not all measures, sorry, that, that trials uh, use have been fully um, investigated in that in our target population. Okay. Um, moving on to the, the second trial that we looked at, that was led by uh, Pete Morris and colleagues. They looked at uh, patients, a large group of patients, 300 patients who were randomized within one medical intensive care unit, and they received either standardized rehabilitation therapy, which consisted of passive range of movement, resistance exercises, um, and then uh, usual care, which was no protocolized intervention, uh, but they could receive um, physical therapy uh, as ordered. And this is an American study again, is it? It is, yes. It's an American study. And it's important to kind of think of the context and the the location and environment of of where some of these trials have been conducted when we're looking at trying to compare that within our perhaps UK healthcare system, Mm -hmm. um, where our usual care in particular may vary quite significantly. Um, so I think certainly, certainly the impression I'm getting from the two studies you've mentioned already is that the physiotherapy input seems to be far less in America than it does over here, from my experience. Yeah, I think there are definite differences in, in practice. It's, very, it's, it's far more common um, in, in North American sites that physical therapy is, um, is specifically requested or specifically referred for patients rather than uh, in the UK, we tend to have uh, more of a, a blanket cover whereby there would be uh, physiotherapy provided to the intensive care unit and physios were autonomous in deciding and assessing who they treated and what treatments were delivered. Um, and so there's much uh, a vaster difference perhaps in, in the, the infrastructure and the service, the models of service delivery. And it is important to consider when we're trying to think of these results would, these, would we get these same results um, if that trial was replicated um, in a UK site? Yeah, 
Okay. So the primary outcome for this was hospital length of stay. And looking at your slides, it looks like yeah. there was no real significant difference, was it? You were tossing a coin by the look of it. Yeah, you, it's kind of using hospital length of stay was based on some earlier work that this group had undertaken where they'd looked at some quality improvement um, a, a quality improvement investigation in, ter in terms of this early mobilization, early rehabilitation program. And so it stemmed very much from that earlier piece of work that they that they had done. Um, but perhaps that's that's too broad an outcome or in the sense that it can be influenced by many things, especially once patients leave the intensive care unit um, and they're on the wards. There's another a number of influences that could determine overall hospital length of stay. Uh, and so perhaps if the, the group had looked at an outcome measure that was more relevant or more reflective of the intervention being examined, they may have seen some differences perhaps in the um, in their primary outcome. They did include those some um, functional measures at discharge. Um, they didn't show a significant difference, but there was some differences between groups later on down the line. So, for example, they looked at the... Um, short physical performance battery and some of the components of the SF36. And there were some differences between groups um, at the later stages at six months. So perhaps we're seeing there some differences in recovery trajectories between patients where some differences are not present at the early stages, but do become apparent later on down the line. SF36? That's the short form 36. It's um, a generic health related quality of life questionnaire. It's used across a number of different um, clinical populations and a number of different studies. Um, and it comprises physical and mental elements of, of um, health related quality of life. But also you can break it down further into subdomains. So for example, you can have a physical function domain within the overall physical component score. And often it's those elements um, of, of self-reported health-related quality of life that people also use to evaluate effectiveness of physical rehab interventions. Because I think if I'm right, in one of the presentations I listened to, the SF36 was quoted for things like um, ICU follow-up clinics and things because it does very much is used as a, as a measure of quality of life, isn't it? So it, it's, it's a fairly generic yeah. um tool isn't it exactly yeah and and so the, the value of it is that you can um you know it's very easy to use in, in across different settings so for example yeah as you said the icu follow-up clinics perfect we ourselves we send the the questionnaire to our patients before they come to see us in clinic and then they they bring it with them um so it's it's great to get a, a self-reported measure the flip side with it not being specific to critical care is that it may not pick up all of the elements that you might get within um, specific to critical care patients and, and the problems that they experience. But to give a general idea of health-related quality of life, um, it covers a number of different aspects. Okay. Um, and so the final study that uh, was published looking at uh, interventions within the ICU was a European study that looked at, um, interestingly looked at patients from a surgical intensive care unit. Um, and often we've seen that a number of these studies are done um, in, in medical units. So it's interesting that this focused on a surgical population. And they were looking at early goal-directed mobilization using a specific algorithm uh, that they had developed, the surgical intensive care unit um, optimum mobilization score. And that was looking at scoring different levels of activity on um, a scale from level zero 
which is where patients would, wouldn't be undertaking any activity, um, up to level four, which was ambulation. And so there are different levels in between um, demonstrating increasingly functional levels of, of activity. And so these patients were randomized to either receiving early mobilization using this goal-directed approach based on assessing what the patient could perform and progressing them accordingly on this scale, or to standard care. And interestingly, with this study, they did show um, significant differences between groups. Their outcomes were the mean surgical ICU mobility score during the ICU stay, and they showed a significant difference between groups, and also length of stay in the surgical intensive care unit and functional independence at hospital discharge. So some quite short-term, uh, relatively short-term outcomes, but interest, you know, interestingly to see this difference between groups using this goal-directed approach and using this very specific um, scale of activity targeted at these at this patient cohort. So the the primary outcome measure this was their their SOM score the mean SOM score level during their ICU stay. So does this was this this wasn't um, analysed further for length of stay particularly? It was just you know if they were there for ten days or there for two days, the mean score was applied however long they were there for. Essentially, yes, they were looking at the the overall um, activity profile of patients um, and and using this particular scale of activity. So looking at to see what the patients were achieving uh, using this approach of specifying uh, mobilization targets using this this score. And, and forgive me, Bronwyn, if you've already said it, but what was the standard care in this study? Was it very similar to the previous studies? Again, an American one, I assume. Uh, standard care was uh, no specific uh, or normal practice, so no no specific intervention using the the SOM score, but whatever was normal practice go normal practice for that page, uh, for that unit. Right. Okay. All right. Um, and interestingly, the the approach using um, early goal directed mobilisation has recently been examined in a feasibility study by the American uh, excuse me by the Australian group led by Carol Hodgson um, and they've shown in a feasibility trial that they've been able to to use a similar approach using the ICU mobility scale uh, and are going to be evaluating that in a further trial. Um, so this approach using this early goal directed um, early goal directed mobilization uh, could be something we see we see more of in the future. Yeah, I don't suppose we've any idea when that study's going to be completed, have we? I think it's only just starting. So probably not for, not for a few years I would have thought. Okay, we we'll keep an the, eye on that one because that could... information that uh, has has recently been published in Critical Care Medicine. Oh right, okay. I might try and chase that one up then and have a look at that. Okay, so you carry on, Bronwyn. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, not at all. It's it's inter- it's, it's far better for for someone to ask me about it rather than for, for me to ramble. But um, so those are the three studies that we looked at uh, that were published for interventions delivered in the ICU, and then we moved down the line towards interventions that were uh, examined after hospital discharge. And there were two trials, um, broadly similar in terms of the intervention that was used. One was looking at the effectiveness of an exercise program on physical function. uh, And that was from um, a Northern Ireland group, uh, the REVIVE trial. That looked at 60 patients who were recruited from six general ICUs. And they were randomized to receive either a six-week personalized exercise program. And that incorporated 
two supervised and one unsupervised session per week, looking at including strengthening and aerobic activity for an hour. And then the patients randomized to the control arm received usual care, which was no specific additional post-hospital discharge support. Um, their primary outcome was the SF36, as, we, as we've uh, mentioned a little bit about that already. Uh, and they showed no difference between their groups um, for that primary outcome of physical function on the SF36. Um, and, and that, looking at the slide, that just surprises me um, because, you know, a six week personalized exercise program, two supervised, one unsupervised sessions a week yeah. compared to usual care and no difference. I find that quite surprising, really. I mean, it's it's only 60 patients, so it's a relatively small study, isn't it? Presumably, um, it was considered to be adequately powered to find the difference they were looking for. But 60, it doesn't seem that many, does it? No, they, well, they, re they recruited to Target, which is important. Um, and they I think this is where selection of outcome measure is, is also important. So again, we, we've talked about one of the, some of the benefits of using something like the SF36 in terms of ease and, and um, you know, you get a generic measure of health related quality of life. And in particular, they were looking at the physical function domain. Um, so that would be quite relative to the activities that were being undertaken um, relative to the intervention itself. Um, but perhaps then if you're looking at a, a more targeted exercise program, some of the more um, exercise specific outcome measures may be useful. And they did show some improvements in their secondary outcomes, which included incremental shuttle walking tests. That's a measure of walking capacity. And also, in, I think what was really interesting around this was patients' perceptions around undertaking exercise. So things like their... Um, whether they felt they were um, ready to exercise and self-efficacy around exercising. So those are some quite important uh, signals around benefit from that intervention. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's balancing up between using um, patient-reported measures around health-related quality of life, and as, as we said, the SF36 is common around that, versus choosing something that's perhaps an exercise metric. Um, so I think what they found is whilst there was no difference in the primary outcome here, actually some of the information that they have gathered from the secondary outcomes will be really important in um, de developing and designing future interventions. Let me tell you about Osler, who is supporting the making of this podcast. We all need to keep up our skills and maintain a record of those skills. Osler is an online facility, which can also be accessed via an app on your phone, which will help you do this. So what are the five key features of Osler? Immersive e-learning. Osler has interactive multimedia modules which are purpose designed to give you a framework for procedures so you can make the most of your early opportunities to perform them. Mobile assessment framework. Generating a logbook ensures that you can keep a record of your experience to date. Osler enables you to track all the procedures you perform, your outcomes and your complication rates. Certification. Demonstrate what you're capable of by acquiring procedural certifications and building a portfolio you can be proud of. Osler is a verifiable record of your procedural training, combining your online learning, a clear history of your activity, outcomes and feedback, and sign-off by a supervisor. And benchmarking. Osler's powerful integrated analytics allow you to process your performance data like never before 
sophisticated reporting tools track ongoing activity and outcomes. So whether you're a student, junior doctor or nurse, or embarking on a career in emergency, critical care or anaesthesia, Osler will help you gain the skills you need, provide a track record of your training and activity, help ensure patient safety, provide you with real-time feedback and help you showcase your skills and experience portfolio in today's competitive landscape. If you want to know more, then go to osler.community. And then the, the final study was uh, in a similar vein, looking at um, a seven-week exercise and education program. And this was led by David McWilliams uh, from Birmingham. And they looked at this randomizing patients from a general ICU, um, 73 patients in, in this group who were split um, and it's a seven week exercise and education program, interval training and cardiovascular activity for up to an hour. I'm exhausted um, just thinking about it, Bronwyn, yeah. to be honest with you. <laughs> this is when you think that the patients are actually having to do more than, more than we might do ourselves. Yeah. Um, and then the usual care was standard care, which is again, no post-hospital discharge um, input. Uh, and that's that's also quite um, common around the UK. We know it's very inconsistent around what types of follow up are available to patients. So s standard care being no specific input is is probably the norm um, around the UK at the moment. Um, they looked at their primary outcome was um, a, a cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And they found no significant difference between patients, uh, between groups um, on that primary outcome. But again, a signal towards some improvement in health related quality of life in that uh, in that study. So, again, it's, it's showing us that there's perhaps some signals around different different measures are coming through that might have some some benefit. Um, this study had uh, 63 patients completed. Um, their target was 90, so perhaps influenced by some of the numbers there. Um, but interestingly, to have uh, a very exercise-specific outcome as the primary outcome for an exercise training study, um, and there's there's um, you know important things to think about with having that. That's a it's, the outcome is relevant to the um, to the program, to the intervention under examination. But um, no, again essentially no no difference in the primary outcome but perhaps some signal in the secondary outcomes okay so we kind of got to the end of the the studies that were published through there and i think it's it became increasingly important that to consider some of the the issues that we've now already touched upon that around the design of these trials and how we interpret the results because that we know that this there's a huge volume of evidence that from uh, observational and follow-up studies that, that show the physical, functional um, and, and cognitive psychological impairments that patients uh, experience after critical illness. So it would seem on the surface uh, surprising that none of these studies, or on the whole, none of these studies um, were showing differences um, with, with physical rehab interventions. But again, thinking about some of the methodological issues and, and breaking it down into looking at the population, the intervention, the control and the outcome. And they are four of the key components when you're designing any study. And in particular, though, looking at uh, complex interventions. And, and I think rehabilitation is a prime example of a very complex intervention to have to evaluate. Um, and there's a number of um, 
number of ways of thinking about it. And so in terms of looking at who are the target population, who is likely to benefit from a rehabilitation intervention? And we've got such a heterogeneous population within our ICUs. Is it reasonable to think that all patients are going to respond the same to any given intervention? And it's, it's unlikely that that would be the case. And so there have been some work uh, work from a number of different groups where they're looking at uh, using clinical measures of disability. Uh, for example, Margaret Herridge's group um, in Canada uh, have done a, a really lovely study where they looked at the functional independence measure. And at seven days, uh, the seven day functional independence measure score and how that then predicted recovery trajectory up to one year. And they isolated four different groups out of that, out of those results that spread from patient's age um, and also their um, functional disability. So looking at those kind of clinical metrics of, of disability and whether that can help us isolate patient groups that might respond better to interventions than others. There is some other work looking at um, healthcare utilisation and analysing um, administrative data sets to look at um, whether that shows us um, looking at pre-morbid functional status, comorbidities, and, and does that influence recovery trajectory? And through those patterns of um, healthcare utilisation um, and and what degree of burden was was acquired by patients, can we identify um, subgroups of, of patients who would respond to rehabilitation better? So basically, just to, just take an extreme example there. Um, Bronwyn, have you taken headphones out? No. Can Oh, no. Can you hear me okay? No, I've just got an echo, that's all. Oh. No, it's gone now. No, it's what? gone now. Don't okay. worry. Okay. I'll, I'll Just a clap coming up. Just to take an extreme example there, Bronwyn, basically what you're saying, um, if we've got a 20-year-old bodybuilder um, and uh, a 60-year-old average, I don't know, post-pneumonia ITU patient and then a 98-year-old, um, God knows how she got into um, ITU if she was that infirm, but let's assume she did, 98-year-old bedridden patient, they're all going to need very different levels of physiotherapy, aren't they? So there's no point as approaching them all in exactly the same way and using the same outcome measures because our, it, 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 it's it's you know um, apples and oranges really isn't it that we're trying to compare and I think that ultimately is the, the point you're getting to there isn't it and and what we when we conduct a trial you have very uh, you try and have very homogenous inclusion criteria so you might say people ventilated for more than 48 hours and length of stay of x number of days for example but that's um, you know that they aren't specific enough to identify patients, and I think that's what we're seeing now from these studies is is that we need to have we've learned a lot more over the years. So when some of these trials were designed and started recruitment during the period of their conduct, we have learned huge amounts um, around the natural recovery of patients after critical illness that has allowed us to then come up with some of these ways of stratifying patients and looking at different recovery profiles and ways in which to phenotype patients' recovery, such that if we were to start trials again now, we would be able to take that more into consideration and, and probably, like you say, target those patients that we knew weren't going to, were unlikely to recover as well as some others. Um, I think you're absolutely, and you're absolutely right. Those extremes, though, help to, to kind of ex um, characterise exactly that point. Yeah, um, okay. 
One other study has uh, uh, interestingly looked at biomarkers as well. So there's some work happening around uh, whether inflammation can also um, suggest different recovery trajectories. And there's a sub-study from Tim Walsh's group in Edinburgh, and they conducted um, the RECOVER study, which was looking at a ward-based uh, generic rehabilitation intervention. But interestingly, this study was looking at the hypothesis around persistent inflammation and functional recovery. And blood samples that they took at ICU discharge and at three months later showed that there was a significant relationship between inflammation and physical recovery. So perhaps actually there is there's more work to go, but perhaps that could also tell us something around who are the patients that um, do and don't recover from or respond to interventions around physical physical recovery. Um, so that's quite an interesting um, take on it as well and an interesting area to look at in the future and to, to keep an eye on. But thinking really around who is the target population and then moving on to, well, what's the intervention that we're delivering to patients? So have we got the intervention right? And is it an intervention that is going to be strong enough, for want of a better word, or the, an optimum dose of an intervention that will have an effect in patients? So are we delivering an intervention that's going to improve people sufficiently, given that we've got a very heterogeneous population? And also that the interventions are adaptable. So we're seeing patients across different parts of the different time points of their recovery. Uh, so within the ICU, again, following uh, discharge and following hospital discharge. So it may be that we now need to look at how we deliver these interventions and make them adaptable to the different time points and also though responsive to individual requirements so you you gave the example uh, Jonathan of the three different patients that could be admitted to the ICU the young fit person that the kind of you know, middle-aged middle function and the the very impaired elderly patient so our interventions have to be responsive to the individual requirements of those different people um, I think also what we'll start to see uh, is not necessarily um, isolated interventions um, or single uh, single specialty interventions. And by that, I mean, we've looked at physical rehab here. I think in the future, we may see combined interventions, so physical and nutrition together, or physical and cognitive together, because we know that there's a huge interplay between physical, cognitive, psychological status in patients. So actually, we may not in the future be looking at how we evaluate just physical rehabilitation on its own, but also the effects of combined interventions. And, and I think that that will be something we see more of. And then finally thinking about, well, how do we, de how do we deliver these interventions? Um, is it all in one go? Is it once a day, twice a day, three times a week? How long in each session? Um, so the whole, whole um, concept of the dose and, and what is the optimum dose? Um, and interestingly, some um, some secondary analysis from a very a recent stroke trial was showing that shorter, more frequent mobilization after acute stroke showed more favorable outcomes at three months. So perhaps we need to look at how we deliver our interventions instead of just one uh, one um, longer period of time, breaking up into little and often, and that might be a more um, more effective approach. So there's an awful lot we we don't know yet about how to design the optimum intervention. 
And interestingly, you're, I'm, I'm skipping a slide ahead here, actually, because one of the things you've gone to next is what is usual care. Yeah. Now, when the um, fluid trials came out, the um, process and promise and um, arise uh, trials came out and they were talking about usual care. And one of my arguments was, well, usual, maybe if usual care is better than what we're doing, perhaps we should be defining usual care instead of worrying about trying to define something that doesn't work. Um, because it strikes me that sometimes usual care is the best approach. But your next slide um, is it discusses the complications of that, really, doesn't it? Because what is usual care? You know, we all do our usual care. You go from hospital to hospital and usual care will be different depending on the team that's there, the size of the unit, the type of patients you've got, the facilities available, the specialities that are also involved. It's it's it, yeah. it's a real thorny one, isn't it, to try and define what usual care actually means. And and it's so, but it's so important because if you don't know what you're comparing to, you, you don't know how how effective your intervention is. But you also don't know how much, like you said, how much more do we need to do to make an intervention effective? And if your intervent, if your usual care, sorry, is is nothing, then you can you, you can hypothetically deliver a very low dose in inverted commas of intervention, and you mm. you may get an effect. <clears throat> If your usual care is, like you say, already very good, then it's going to take a lot more than that to see a significant improvement with your intervention. And that's definitely been, I think that's come through when we've been looking at comparing some of the earlier trials that were published before last year um, that are internationally different. So looking, as as we mentioned earlier on in in the discussion, the variability between, um, you know, for example, North American practice and, and UK practice. Um, definitely we've seen examples of, of where um, you know an intervention for one trial is the same as usual, um, usual care for another trial. And so you've got this total disparity in, in exactly that. But I think in the future, in order to really start to, to look at how we evaluate complex interventions like rehabilitation, really de- defining in detail what usual care is across all of the sites that are taking part in your study is going to be a really important part. I, don't, I think we'll have to see more detail than um, perhaps what we're used to seeing so far and, and actually really describing what is, you know, how much is how much physiotherapy someone is receiving, how long and, and what were the activities involved and so yeah, on. Yeah, that, and that's often the problem, isn't it? And you get these papers they presented to you and they say, right, compared to usual care, and then they never tell you what usual care actually was yeah. in any great detail. So, you know, again, it's hard to compare what we do in my hospital compared to yeah. what they did in this trial that might have achieved an awful lot. Absolutely. Like you say, we might already be doing an awful lot of what they Absolutely. what they do what they're proposing to do and i mean you're always limited a little bit in how much you can report uh in 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 a paper but i, I think that that's increasingly we're, we're seeing that that's an important part to um of evaluating this and actually increasingly um authors are are you know, giving more information around that and, and detailing that in, in in more depth yeah definitely and, okay. and these were just a few of the examples of some of the the, the point prevalence observational studies that have been have been conducted that look at usual practice and, and just showing that point that really it's very variable. Um, and yeah, and just to say that, um, sorry, um, Bronwyn is talking about, there's a slide here with four different um, 
research papers on them. And what I'll do is I'll point to those in the show notes once the podcast is produced, just so people know which ones you're talking about, Bronwyn. And they're showing that actually the the levels of mobilisation are actually much lower than we might think that they they should be given the um given the general increase around um in um interest and, and implementation of early mobilization when you look at it in a lot of detail like some like these point prevalence and detailed observational studies have done that actually there's there is some disconnect between um the the literature around early mobilization and how that's implemented in clinical practice so that also is another element to thinking about um how we apply the results of some of these studies um into clinical practice that actually existing rates may not be as high as we think they are but again that varies between different areas and different units Okay. And I think we come to the final slide in your presentation, I think possibly is one of the most interesting ones, certainly from your point of view, um, which outcomes for evaluation, because very much from what what we've discussed um, throughout this conversation is that it's very difficult to measure something if you don't actually know how you're measuring it and ultimately what you're measuring. So I get the impression that uh, your work at the moment is very much working on this. Yeah, there's there's an initiative around development of, of core outcome sets, and that's uh, an agreed minimum number uh, minimum number of outcomes that all trials would agree to measure, um, and that way we would get round some of this inconsistency that we see across all of these trials where they've all measured something different. Um, some might measure health-related quality of life using the SF36. Another study will measure physical function um, using one of the various uh, scales that we, we've kind of touched upon. Uh, it might be a walking test. It might be um, physical function tests, etc. And so um, these core outcome sets, it's something that I'm looking at as part of my um, research, is getting agreement between relevant stakeholders around what would be these core outcomes that could be measured in all trials, um, and it wouldn't mean that that it wouldn't mean that other outcomes couldn't be measured. But we're trying to get some consistency so that we would be able to compare and contrast far more robustly across the evidence um, and across the, uh, the studies that have been conducted, um, and, and that would be done in the future to get around some of these. This um, you know not being able to look at look at the same studies and, and compare again across them. Um, so I'm looking at trying to develop a core outcome set that will look at interventions in the ICU, interventions following ICU discharge and following hospital discharge, because we may see that the outcomes that we think are important to measure in the ICU might change um, as patients move along the recovery trajectory and the outcomes that are important to measure um, down the line are different. Um, and also the, with this type of work, um, we're bringing in patients and caregivers, and they're a really key stakeholder in this process because all of the outcomes that we measure so far have been the outcomes that we as the clinicians or the researchers have felt are the most important. So the primary outcome is chosen by the research team. And this process of developments of core outcome sets brings patients and caregivers into the mix as a key stakeholder group Um, and so it brings in the patient voice around uh, achieving meaningful outcomes for patients as well so that's a really vital part of the process that we perhaps haven't addressed in the past okay 
And I think so that... your conclusion, yeah. um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to actually just read um, the uh, penultimate slide. I'm going to read a little bit from it because I think this kind of sums up an awful lot of what we've already said before we actually get to your conclusion. Is that um, there's a, a summary of the the Comet Initiative, which is what we've just been talking about. So the summary says rehabilitation of patients following critical illness is an area of clinical practice with an emerging evidence base. Notice the word emerging evidence base. I think the implication there is that there hasn't been a great evidence base in the past but obviously it, it is improving now nonetheless there are limited data currently available to support the national guidance uh, which is the nice guidelines rehabilitation after critical illness 2009 and practice remains inconsistent at both a national and international level so it's not just us doing this um, not so well i think it's a, a worldwide issue the lack of defined clinical outcomes and the variance in definition of those clinical outcome reported makes comparison amongst the trials difficult. And this really is, is what you're doing at the moment, isn't it? And just to sum it up, you, you, we need to discover what to measure, how to measure and when to measure it. Yes, exactly that. And, and it's, it's just trying to get more consistency, more um uh, transparency in the reporting as well and so that we're all talking the same thing so we're, if we're trying to get some consistency it may not be in every single outcome but if we can get some consistency in in say these core outcomes um then i think we, we will have a much more powerful evidence base in the future because we'll be able to assimilate and synthesize the results of trials far more easily than we can do and we have been able to do so far and hopefully as a consequence of it being more robust, the results of those trials are going to be taken more seriously and hopefully it will uh, impact more fully on patients' mm. progress and pathway. Absolutely. When, when we conduct um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses, we'll be able to do much more with the, the data from various different trials. We'll be able to incorporate that into the meta-analyses and, and, and hopefully arrive at some more robust conclusions about which are the best types of interventions and, and what effect do they have and that makes it much easier to translate those findings into clinical practice because we'll get we'll get conclusions that uh, clinicians will be able to, to use more um, more meaningfully in, in the real world or on the shop floor to say. Excellent. Well, it sounds like a long-term project to me, Bronwyn. I suspect this isn't going to be something that's going to happen in the next six months. So no. um, Bronwyn may have dropped into the conversation a couple of times, at least, I think, that she's heading off to Australia, is it, for a couple of months? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to. I've got the uh, great opportunity to be able to, to go to Australia. I'm going to uh, Professor Linda Dennehy's group at the University of Melbourne um, for a, a research visit as part of my fellowship which will be a great opportunity and I'm really looking forward to it. Fabulous. Well, mm -hmm. I hope you have a fantastic time, Bronwyn. You'll have Thank to you. uh, be a bit more active on Twitter for us so we can see what you're doing. <laughs> yes, I know. And we can I think that's been my resolution every year for the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Bronwyn leading us through some of the research regarding early mobilisation and some of the difficulties we have with assessing its... Uh, efficacy and how useful it's going to be in the future so there's some work to be done there and clearly that's something Bronwyn has got a hold of so that was great one other thing I want to say um, whilst I do have a sponsor for this podcast um, it would be wonderful if I could help fund it a little further so another thing I've done is set up something called a Patreon account 
and this will enable anybody that wishes to to donate as little as one dollar per podcast and it will only be donated when i issue the podcast you can cap the amount you donate each month so if you only want to donate one dollar each month or four dollars each month then it will be capped at that as well. You could go to uh, patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Jonathan Downham. And if you wanted to, that would be fabulous. If you can't, that's also great because I continue to make these podcasts. That's not going to change. Just a little support would be fabulous if you could do that for me. However, that's me done for now. I've kept you for a good 40 minutes. I hope you found this one useful. I've got many more in the pipeline, lots of exciting things to come, so I'm looking forward to it all. Anyway, keep well. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>